I was uh, <coughs> I had lunch today with uh, Rob, the resident teacher here at Gaia House, and we were speaking a little bit about the way the um, the the Dharma scene has changed over the last. Uh, well, over the last two and a half thousand years, I guess, right? It keeps changing. That's the nature of fluidity. But we were particularly looking at the last few years. And the way in which, with the kind of upsurge of interest in mindfulness and the plethora of Buddhist and quasi-Buddhist and pseudo-Buddhist books and things that are out there that a lot of people who come to practice have had a kind of high-speed Buddhist education. So if you've had, you know, even a little bit of exposure to a retreat practice or to reading Dharma teachings or listening to talks, etc., uh, etc., et you know, you've probably taken on in some way some of these basic tenets of the Buddha's teaching, Dharma practice, of uh, the orientation of mindfulness, etc. You may well have some sense that attachment is bad, <laughs> things are impermanent, mindfulness is the answer. <laughs> and that's what I mean by high-speed Buddhist education. <laughs> And it seems like what tends to happen or what can happen is that we, because we're used to a very information-consumptive culture, we can take on these things and then, okay, I've got that now, and then we're ready for something, what? Something else, something better, something deeper. But... I don't know if it gets much deeper than that. Attachments are problematic. Things are impermanent. Mindfulness is good. So, when I want to speak about uh, impermanence, for example, Anicca in Pali. What we've been calling the fluidity of things today. I'm all too aware that, you know, in some ways it's like Dharma 101. And that easily what can happen in the mind of the listener is, oh, oh, another talk on impermanence. As if we know about impermanence. And maybe you do. But for myself, after 25 years of practice... I'm still learning a lot about life's fluidity. And it's one of the most beautiful and humbling and challenging lenses through which to explore experience. The fact that it's constantly slipping through my fingers, that it defies my attempts to fix and um, 
contain it. So we might be invited to kind of look beyond our high-speed Buddhist education. And it's my hope in, in reflecting a little on the fluidity of things that you might put aside maybe what you think you know unless you have the good fortune of not thinking you know anything. And just to see as we explore and reflect together how these reflections might actually apply. How they apply to your life, how they apply to your practice, how they apply to meditation. And of course, while we're we're here, meditation is a big part of our daily activity. And so we might use meditation practice as an example. But that's only because it's it's a big part of our daily activity while we're here. And actually looking at and working with these reflections on fluidity is every bit as relevant to any other daily activity. We've been pointing in a just a very, a very simple and immediate way to the undeniable and constantly revealing, changing nature of our experience. So I'd like to look at some, maybe some sense of progression at how we can explore and work with this dynamic of life and how consciousness change actually changes frees up expands as as it as we let it be more and more influenced by these facets of reality explored immediacy a bit yesterday and today then with the fluidity of things and probably as we explore looking at also some other of these dynamics so fluidity uncertainty inconceivability and insubstantiality And before I came in, I was just reflecting a little on how to speak about impermanence, fluidity. It's like I was sort of trying to reflect for myself. And because even though I'm just saying how it's one of the most you know, important and beautiful and transformative and challenging areas... It was actually, it was kind of elusive for me to reflect on, on how that's the case, or at least a way to speak about that. But something happens as we get more, as we attune more to the fact that everything is in flux where partly we allow, we allow things to change in their own time. 
where we increasingly, hopefully, give up trying to change things. And of course, that statement needs opening up a little. Because it might sound like a terrible idea to give up trying to change things. I mean, that's why you came here, right? That's why we do a lot of what we do. We want things to change. There's a whole lot of ways things need to change. There's a whole lot of things I can find here that could do with changing. Then there's a whole lot of ways I can... uh, a whole lot of things I can see around me that could really do with changing. And whether I look in terms of my personal life, so close personal life, the things about me that I could really see would do with could, would benefit from changing, or interpersonal life, the dynamics within my family and relationships that I could do with changing, or whether I look at my work life and the kind of trajectory of my of personal life. And the ways in which emotionally, situationally, materially, financially, things could do with changing. And then if I look in the bigger sphere at the political situation and the ecological situation, etc., etc. There's a lot of ways in which things could do with changing. So it might sound passive, maybe even irresponsible to give up trying to change things. And that's where there's a certain trickiness with trying to speak about it. And partly I think it helps to separate the, and the, what we might call the ideology and the methodology. The ideolo- in the ideology, I want things to change. I do my practice because I sense that things could be different can change and I want them to change. I sense uh, I can find certain unhelpful habit patterns, certain entrenched beliefs, uh, certain uh, compacted, uh, undigested emotion that some have been speaking about. And I sense that I want them to change and that they can change. So in the ideology, whether it's the personal life whether it's the outer life, whatever. We want things to change, things need to change. But we tend to apply the ideology to the methodology. And then we try, how are things going to change? By me trying to make them change. And there, like I say, if we just use our meditation practice as an example... You can probably see how unfortunately, frustratingly, painfully, futilely, you try to make things change. We try to make our, the way our body feels change. We try to make our state change. We have some sense of what a good meditation would be like. And we try to change our bad meditation into a good meditation. So there's a change to be made from where we are in, in, in whatever 
um, difficulties and obstructions and unhelpful habits we experience to a freer way of meeting life. There's the ideology. But the, the methodology which we start to sense into and actually trust more and more as we let ourselves experience the natural movement of sensations, the natural movement of states. The methodology is that we give up trying to change our state. And instead of trying to change point A, what's unsatisfactory, into point B, called a freer condition, we start to trust the, the, our willingness to just stay with A, to be contactful with what's happening, to be curious about what's happening, to care for what's happening, to give space to what's happening. In other words, we give what's happening the actual possibility to change itself. We give things the space to change, to free up, to move. And increasingly then, life, our life, whether our life in the microcosm of meditation or our life in the midst of activity feels increasingly like a response to changing conditions. A free response to changing conditions. A response that can be extraordinarily creative, active, dynamic, inspired, intuitive. But it's not that we really feel like we're doing the creativity. Or the inspiration. There's an increasing sense of, a fr- of freely responding to changing conditions in giving the space and the possibility and the allowance for change to happen rather than trying to change things. Trying to change things is exhausting. And I probably don't need to tell you that. But if trying to change things is all we've ever done, trying to change ourselves, even more futile, trying to change others, and trying to change the world, it's very difficult for us to trust to stop trying to change things. My daughter is a student. She's in her final year at university. And she put on Facebook this morning, you know those endless keep calm and something or other things. So she put a thing on Facebook this morning. It said, don't keep calm. Go out and change the world. Proper student sentiment. And it's a good one. One of my teachers who was uh, who is very respected Buddhist teacher, many years as a monk, has written lots of books on Buddhism, etc. And uh, when asked once to distill his sense of Dharma practice, he said, be kind, have fun, change the world. 
Nice. But don't try to change the world. <laughs> so it's it's like I said, it's difficult to speak about. How we might say, how do we possibly make a tr- transition from trying to change things to giving up trying to change things? It's almost impossible. Or it's the kind of giving up that has a sense of collapse in it, of hopelessness, of disillusionment, of passivity. And when you see people who have deeply explored consciousness, they don't seem passive. Often actually rather busy, rather dynamic, involved in all kinds of different projects. Agents for great change, but holding it rather lightly, playfully even. You know, the Dalai Lama is a wonderful exemplar of that. Right? Very complicated schedule and responsibilities, and then this and this and this. But he doesn't look like he's trying too hard. <laughs> So the way, I would say, the way that transition happens, the way we dare to let go of trying to change things, so as actually to be an effective um, agent of change, catalyst for change, participant in change, (laughs) is by studying life's constant capacity to do its changingness. And we start to just to feel increasingly our capacity to align with that, to respond to that, to uh, somehow. I'm hesitating to say to direct that, because the directing that sounds like a bit trying-ish. And I just really encourage you in your own practice. As I say, whether within the microcosm of meditation or whether within the outer life, just to both to study the, the trying to change, to keep attuning to the natural already happening nature of change, and to feel for those places in your own life where you have access to that wisdom that knows how to wait, how to listen, how to allow, how to respond. So that so that change moves in you through you with you in extraordinary ways unimaginable ways surprising ways so that we might look at the the innumerable blessings of our changing life and somehow not feel responsible for any of it and yet be inseparable from the way things Move, reveal, open up, etc.
So I don't know if I've spoken about that very clearly. But it doesn't matter whether the, the underst- whether you f- have a sense of understanding or not. The direction is in, in that sense of looking at change in that way. Classically, two things start to happen when we really um, when we really acknowledge the fluidity and therefore the uncontrollability and therefore the uncertainty of our changing experience. These are the two things that are you know, well, uh, well documented, well known, very classic in, uh, in the tradition when we really look at change. One is that we tend to see the way everything is ending, disappearing, fading, dying, decaying, being lost. And if we really, if we really apply ourselves to to looking at the changing nature of things, it's inevitable, it seems, to kind of enter into that that stage of a sense of loss and grief and sometimes meaningless and hopelessness at the fact that everything. You know, we look at the flower, and we see. The compost. We look at each other and we see the wrinkles, the disease, the death, the skeleton, the ashes. And in the in the in the classic uh, modes of practice in Buddhism, that's very strongly encouraged kind of practice the meditation on the 39 um, disgusting aspects of the body meditation on looking at the the whoever is comes into we come into contact with and seeing them as or, as dying and already dead the contemplation and the contemplations around disease and death it's not very glamorous, and it's um, it can be quite destabilizing. It's it's what the Christian tradition refers to as the dark night of the soul, and d- different people tend to um, to be affected by that that side of impermanence to different degrees. And you know, some of the, just the, the sort of existential malaise that we might face as individuals, that we see, you know, that we just, that culturally, 
societally. We see uh, ourselves maybe or family members or friends in just a kind of a depressive malaise, a loss of meaning and purpose in life. That might be mild, might come and go, or might for some be very uh, difficult and uh, long-lasting. And in a way, it's, it's part of this sense of seeing the, the hopelessness that nothing can endure, that nothing stays. And I can feel that existential malaise descending on the room as I speak about it. Right? It's like, oh... And that's, t- that's often the, the first part of the way we really come into a deep contact with the truth of impermanence. Seeing that everything's ending. And it can be... Um, it can be... can need a certain steadiness and a lot of gentleness with ourselves and often some support from a teacher to, to stay with that because what happens as we just recognize that, that, that truth right, whether we like it or not whether we find it depressing or not it doesn't matter, it's true, nothing endures the flower will become compassed you and me and everybody else will become dust. Are already becoming dust. And yet as we stay with that, we start to sense the, the other side of life's fluidity. The extraordinary dynamism, creativity, aliveness, irrepressibility. preciousness of all that is because none of it's lasting none of it's lasting and when I say that we'll all become dust how easily we say well it's true but and we leap forward some decades and then there's some dusty place for me there (laughs) but when I say that nothing endures or when I say that we don't endure we tend to say, oh, well, yes, that's true, but I'm, I'll, I'll endure for some time and then I'll become dust. But actually, we're not enduring now. And of course we know, this is part of our high-speed Buddhist education, or even our, high-speed, our secular education now, we know everything's changing um, atomically even. But we tend to take change to be enduring for some time and then we'll come to an end. So it's a very powerful thing to attune to the fluidity of moment-to-moment experience. Oh, this experience is precious because it's not lasting. This configuration, this moment... This mind state, this breath, this, uh, this thought, this mood, this light, 
already slipping through our fingers. So we start to feel an extraordinary intimacy with it, an extraordinary responsibility, an extraordinary longing to be close to life in its preciousness, in its wonder, in its uncertainty. And we start to find that we can't, things are changing so constantly, so uh, fluidly, that we can't really make sense. And we start to live in the light of that uncertainty, that we don't know, we don't know where this is going, this situation, this life this body, this mind state. We live in the, start to live more and more in the light of the extraordinary fragility, the extraordinary preciousness, the extraordinary intimacy that we find ourselves able to have with changing experience. And with the sense that we don't know uncertain the fruits of that uncertainty are that we stop needing to know so much certainty is a kind of tyranny and we're taught to be certain our education's uh, born on certainty we like to be certain if we can't be certain about something which often we can't we make up some certainty and all the cosmologies and all the religions and all the belief systems and all the world views, whether ones we're familiar with or unfamiliar with, the ones we agree with or disagree with, you know, life doesn't conform to a world view or a religious belief or a cosmology or a or an, um, creation mythology. Not that of this religion or that religion or scientific materialism, which is just another mythology. Life's mysterious, uncertain. And ordinarily, ordinary consciousness finds it very difficult to be with uncertainty, and so we create some certainty called my religious belief, or called my uh, creation mythology, or called uh, science. And of course, it's very, all of those can be helpful in d- different ways. <coughs> but the fruits of getting comfortable with uncertainty are that we start to actually be able to inhabit a consciousness that doesn't know. Or that doesn't know what this is. That can give up relying on the assumed and learned certainty. Assumed and learned certainty knows what this is. This is Gaia House, it's raining, I'm here, you're there, etc., etc. That's a very clunky, partial, limited sense of what's happening. When we can, when we learn actually to really tolerate uncertainty not knowing 
what we might call non-conceptual awareness. As we can actually tolerate non-conceptual awareness, then of course we're able to have non-conceptual experience. (coughs) If we rely on certainty, in other words, if we rely on what we think we know, in other words, if we rely on our concepts of this, that, here, there, me, you, then that's all we can experience. And so then, uh, teachings that point to a non-conceptual reality, non-separation, fluidity, infinity of consciousness. It's like, uh, we try to make sense of those with our usual apparatus. Right? Concept, certainty. So as we, as we allow life's changing nature as we feel the preciousness and ambiguity of what's happening, the unknowableness of what's happening. It's like we, it's like we learn a, a, new, a new sense, actually. We've got our five sensory senses, in the East they speak of the six normal senses, right? the five that we speak of in the Western tradition, plus conceptual mind as a sixth sense. So we can see with the eyes, hear with the ears, etc. And then conceive with the mind. Conceive in terms of remember, uh, imagine, ruminate, etc. And we actually start to develop another sense, a non-conceptual sense. The sense of being able to um, meet reality without understanding it in a conventional way. Without, in other words, having to reduce it to concept, to the familiar, to the known. We start listening to life as it's happening rather than to our pre-existing descriptions and ideas about life. Fluidity reveals uncertainty. Uncertainty reveals inconceivability. And then we find, as we investigate life, again, life of everyday relationship, everyday activity, but also just the life of sitting here, like we spend so much time doing these days. We find that everything we investigate eludes conventional understanding. So we've been, we've been focusing just on you know, using the naturalness of sensation these days. And the idea, initially, of course, the idea that we know what that sensation is. Mm, we spoke yesterday. It's, oh, it's my leg. It's my thought, it's this feeling, it's that memory. 
but what happens if you explore what concept says is the pain in my leg what happens if you explore it without reference to your usual certainty the experience opens up the experience reveals more of itself the experience doesn't really yield to knowing anything in particular but life comes alive life's immediacy life's fluidity life's uncertainty life's inconceivability life's mysteriousness comes alive and it doesn't matter what the point of departure is life's fluidity and mysteriousness comes alive just in a a breath in a sensation in a moment of confusion in a thought about your dog there's no particular gateway all of life any of life reveals the way life is So study life. Not as an idea, not in the concept, but in its changing nature, in its uncertainty, in your willingness to put aside what you think you know and to find out in what turns out to be infinitely deepening ways. And they're now sitting here and now walking around in the rain and now hanging out in silence together over these days might yield extraordinary, life-changing, world-changing insight. May it be so. for the benefit of all of us all those we have contact with all of life